welcome into a very special original gangsters podcast. I am your host, Scott Bernstein, along with my co-host and partner in crime, the doctor himself, Jimmy Bucciolato. Good afternoon. Hey now. Uh, so we are going to do a little current breaking news, and then from that we're going to uh, spawn off into some uh, very interesting and historically impactful organized crime tales from the dark side. Uh, and when we're talking about tales from the dark side, we're talking about the domination of the Las Vegas gaming industry, which was built and paid for by American organized crime and then uh, subsequently robbed blind by multiple organized crime families from around the country that came together in, in the 70s and, you know, became kind of like a, uh, a combine, almost like they were you know, putting their money together in a, some type of mutual fund <laughs> or hedge fund. But instead of, you know, back, actually not a bad yeah, analogy, <laughs> you know, instead of backing a, a, a factory or a company or a, a business, they backed the gaming industry in Nevada and stole tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in the 70s and 80s in this coalition, if you will, of the Kansas City, Milwaukee, Chicago, uh, Cleveland, and Detroit crime families. And this conspiracy was depicted in the 1995 Martin Scorsese film Casino. And a lot of what you saw in that movie, our guest lived. We want to welcome on Gary Jenkins, who was a retired member of law enforcement. He was in the Kansas City Police Department's organized crime unit for over a decade and was in the thick of it when it came to law enforcement taking down the mob in Vegas in a historic case called Straw Man. And uh, Gary was on the front lines. He is a renaissance man. Uh, since he's retired from law enforcement, he, he went to law school. He's become a, a podcaster, a blogger, a documentarian. And we are... When we're talking about, I'm going to bring you in here a second. I'm going to bring you in here in one second, Gary. Sorry. The breaking uh, news uh, you got to get to. Uh, so what we are going to talk about is the fact that Alan Glick, the front man for the Italian mobs, control over Las Vegas, um, the owner of a company called Argent, which uh, was the, the second biggest casino ownership group in Nevada, uh, Alan Glick recently passed away at 79, died of cancer, um, never went to prison, uh, but uh, became the star witness at the straw man case. And with that, we now bring in Gary Jenkins. <laughs> Hi, Scott. Hi, Jimmy. Good to be you. Hi, Gary. Thank you for coming on. I apologize for the, the long introduction. But uh, I, I, I assure everybody it will be well worth it. Gary Jenkins is a, a, a man that, again, uh, just like a lot of our guests, he's lived a movie script, and uh, he's here to tell us all about it. <laughs> so, uh, Gary, um, let's start with the fact that if you're a fan of the movie Casino, um, you know that they're uh, constantly making references to Kansas City. And uh, yeah. back in the Midwest where all the bosses would uh, congregate in the back of um, a grocery store in the movie. But in reality, I think it was a restaurant. Um, and there were characters based on the boss of Kansas City, Nick Sevilla, uh, his underboss, uh, Tuffy DeLuna. And there's even a scene where, or there's two scenes that uh, I, I want to throw out there and then have you comment on and then kind of go from there. Uh, there's the scene, uh, which again, were based on things that, that you were working as they were happening from a law enforcement angle. Uh, there's the scene where the FBI or the government, uh, a task force, is made aware of this wide-reaching conspiracy, and it comes from um, what was known as the Villa Capri bug. Um, in the movie, it's it's shown as a bug in this grocery store, which, again, was fictionalized, uh, a grocery store that was being run by the Kansas City underboss, um, who's in, in, the, in the movie's called Artie Piscano, but it's based on Tuffy DeLuna. And uh, 
this bug, which was up and running in this restaurant called the Villa Capri, uh, was running to try to gain information on a series of gangland murders in the Kansas City area tied to a, a factional dispute known as the River Key Wars um, that, that Gary has reported on uh, quite uh, extensively. Again, he, he was on the front lines working the River Key Wars, and then he's uh, chronicled it um, in, in subsequent years. And uh, while they were on that bug looking for information on these murders, all of a sudden they're hearing talk about a Vegas casino scam involving multiple crime families. And Alan Glick, while he's not named on the uh, tapes in terms of saying Alan Glick, he's referenced. Uh, so let's start with that. Uh, uh, Gary, kind of give our our listeners a background on on a little bit on the River Key Wars and why you were uh, why you had a bug in the Villa Capri, and then how that led to everyone being tipped off to um, the fact that there was this huge Vegas casino skim, and a lot of it was kind of the epicenter of the 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 puppeteering was a lot of it was happening from Kansas City. Thanks, Scott. Uh, you know, <laughs> as in any mob story, it, it's never simple. Uh, they're never simple, but I'm going to simplify this as much as I can for the listeners. I've had some experience in doing that with my podcast because uh, you introduce too many characters. It's, yeah, it it's confuses people. Yeah. Yes. So it uh, comes down to it. There was, there was a small uh, entertainment district that had gotten started, and, and a lot of the mob guys were being booted out of a strip or a bunch of strip, they had a bunch of strip clubs and there was urban renewal going in and, and this little entertainment district was really popping good. It was popping big time, but it was it was a nice family place with uh, singles kind of bars. People that drew the, you know, the middle class uh, uh, baby boomers like myself down there to hear new bands and, and meet girls or meet boys and, and uh, they had cool little restaurants down there. And it was really popping and these guys wanted to move their strip clubs down there and uh, there was a guy. The neighborhood, just for the audience, the neighborhood was called the River Key, right? It was called the River Key. It was right next to the city market. And the city market was, you know, the, in every major city, the city market is always a place where the Black Handers first landed and, and the Italians, the Sicilians in Kansas City first landed, lived real clear, near close by because they, they had a lot of produce, uh, uh, business in the produce uh, markets and they uh, they had restaurants close by and they would buy produce and and the produce markets were usually the kind of the heart of organized crime i'd say in almost every major city that they landed in and they had a proprietary interest in this area and river the river key was just a block off of it it was old basically abandoned turn of the century beautiful brick buildings with concrete uh, decorative cornices and and window frames and and doorways and uh, lentil pieces and and this guy had uh, started buying up some leases and buying these buildings and fixing them up and putting these uh, making them open for these young entrepreneurs because he didn't have to charge much rent uh, and uh, they opened it up and it was really hopping good and these mob guys were going to move in and there was one one man who was the son of uh, a mobster a, a soldier if you will and the Willie Camasano crew. Uh, Willie Camasano was a, a called him Willie the Rat. He was a much feared enforcer and had a had a crew of thieves that worked for him that were pretty prolific. And, and uh, uh, man worked for him. Uh, I don't know if he's actually a made guy. He probably was David Bonadonna. His son was one of these first restaurateurs that moved in, and, and his son was not going down the mob path. But his son knew all these mobsters, and he knew when they started moving into the River Key, it was going to destroy that family atmosphere. It was going to destroy the uh, the young professionals that were coming down there at night to meet each other and hear the, the new bands. Uh, they weren't going to keep coming down when he started moving in that red light district uh, era, aura. And, and so he started ratting them out to liquor control because they would move in with a straw owner. Uh, you know, an owner who didn't have a felony conviction and uh, and try to get the liquor license, and he was then ratting them out, selling liquor control uh, through a, a, a 
city councilman that he had a connection to that, hey, this guy, this bad business, he, he is not who he says he is. Uh, the owner is going to be somebody different. And, and denying those liquor licenses and the Comisanos and then the Savellas is being, they were a little, the next Savella, the boss, his brother, Carl or Court, was a little above all that. This was more on a street level. And this Willie Comisano, his brother had one of those strip clubs and he wanted to move it in down there. That was kind of his bailiwick, shall we say. And, and uh, Freddie Bonadonna wouldn't do it. And he, and Willie, the rat, Comisano told Freddie's dad, David said, you know, you got to tell him he's got to quit this. He's got to help us get these clubs down here. And David went to Freddie and Freddie says, you know, I'm not going to do that. Uh, David went back to Willie and Willie said, uh, you know, well, if he's not going to help that, you know, he could get hurt. David said, you know, if you got to hurt my son, you're going to have to go through me. Well, that was enough said for Willie Comisano about two or three weeks later. Uh, David pulls into Willie Comisano's, what, what we would call his headquarters. His office was a, uh, a small garage on that far east side of Kansas City. And his green Mustang pulls in and the garage door goes down. And and the same witness that saw that Mustang pull in sees it pull back out. And he said, whoever was driving it did not really know how to drive a stick shift. He was jumping and jerking and bucking and and drove it off, got it away from there. And they found that car and it was a stick shift with David Bonadonna's body in the trunk of it a few blocks later, about three or four days later. And then after that, a few days after that, an associate of Comisano's pulls into his garage and two guys who knew Freddie, knew the area, had been seen hanging out at Freddie's a lot. They hide right next to the garage door and a guy pulls in you know, he didn't close the garage door immediately. And believe me, Scott, I always close my garage door immediately after learning this. They just step inside and blast him in the shotgun well, before he can even, you know, get out of his car or move. Uh, two shotguns, one on each side. Threw them away as they drove off. Typical mob hit. And these were guys who were, we never could connect that the son, Freddie, really had anything to do with that but he knew these guys really well but they both were kind of upstarts and connected to some other young turks that were starting a little rebellion in kansas city anyhow uh so here we've got uh, we've got david bonadonna dead we got uh johnny green dead and uh, the the gloves are off freddie goes into hiding and there's plots running all over the place about who's going next that sets the scene for that hidden microphone so this is 1975 76 um right and there is a, a full-fledged mob war that has erupted not just in kansas city not just the underworld but it's erupted in the middle of the primary entertainment district downtown where you have all of these yuppies uh, these like, like these boomers that are about to become yuppies in the 80s, uh, they're all socializing down there. And the next thing you know, there are bodies dropping and car bombs and fire bombs. And, you know, within months, uh, the economy in the River Key collapses because nobody wants to go and put themselves, uh, you know, possibly as, you know, find themselves collateral damage. Um, at the same time, you have this Bonadonna faction, um, and you referenced Johnny Green, Johnny Amaro, I think they called him Johnny Green, uh, who was right. murdered after David Bonadonna. They then align with these independent Spiro brothers. Correct. Actually, actually, Freddie Bonadonna, he he he's over his head. He's out of. Yeah. He ends up going in witness protection. The the Spiro brothers, the. Actually, one main Spiro, Carl Spiro, his brothers come along with him, but they're not really that active. They they get active. But Carl Spiro is already recruiting young guys. He'll even recruit non-Italians. And he's telling them, I, I interviewed one of them. He's telling me, he said, you know, we're moving on these Sabellas. They're weakened. Uh, we're going to move in on them. We're going to get a bigger piece of the action. Uh, his, uh, you know, he wanted to make his brother, one of his other, other brothers uh, get a higher-ranking Teamsters job, for example, and they wouldn't give it to him, so. He was trying to to uh, uh, force the Savellas to pay more attention to his faction, and he was a leader. Carl Sparrow was a real leader among a bunch of young thieves that were, you know, pretty prolific money earners, and and so he thought he could move in on them, and and that's boy, that's when 
that's what the plotting was about right there. And I think, I don't think I'm overstating this. I think that part of the Spiros, and I'm, this is, this is going to be our segue. I think part of the Spiros motivation, uh, just like you saw in Cleveland with the Danny Green war that was happening at the same time, um, you had this golden goose that was laying golden eggs, which was this skin. And I think the Spiros thought, just like Danny Green thought in Cleveland, if we take over the city, if we take over from the Sevillas, we'll be getting a piece of that Las Vegas skin. Yeah, that's possible. They knew, you know, they knew that there was a lot of action going on with the Sevilla faction. You know, the rooms were out there, and uh, they wanted a piece of that action. They wanted, you know, they wanted teamster jobs. They right. wanted, you know, more respect. And, and uh, so that's, you know, that's where we're headed here in, in this. Uh, they had a personal bridge. They're up on this bug in the Villa Capri, and then, you know, tell the audience that they're, they're looking for evidence uh, for murders that have been, uh, uh, you know, uh, occurring in Kansas City over the previous handful of years tied to this River Key War, and all of a sudden they start hearing talk about a Las Vegas skim. So talk, talk about that. Right, yeah. They uh, they had a pretty good informant named Mike Ruflo who had sat in on some of those. He had been recruited, he and a guy named Gene Shepard, been recruited to go put a bomb under a guy's car at one of those tables back there. He was a solid informant. And, and surveillance reports would show these guys meet back there all the time. They always ate at the center or drank at the same table. I guess they might have pizza once in a while, but it, it was primarily just a pizza joint and a drinking joint late at night. They'd be in there late at night, and they'd have these meetings with people. And so, you know, that that all goes in the affidavit to get the a hidden microphone put in there. And, and, and as Bill Alsey, the agent who who was one of the guys that always got the you know, maybe overnight, he wouldn't be there overnight. There'd be an agent sitting on it. And they listen and they mark what they call as pertinent. And they copy off what they think is pertinent and on a cassette tape and then leave it the next day. And then uh, an agent like Bill Owsley will, will go listen to that. And, and so he says after listening to Staying Alive, he didn't know how many times for several days coming on the jukebox. <laughs> the Bee Gees, yeah, that's, you know, that was it, was ubi- it was ubiquitous at that time period. <laughs> It was the, you turn on the radio nine times out of ten, you were going to hear the Bee Gees. That's a great soundtrack, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I love staying alive, man. It was just, it just transported you to that, you yeah. know, beautiful women and glamorous clubs. Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, I said, that, and, and Bill Owsley did not care about being transported to beautiful women and, and uh, great clubs. He wanted information on homicides, not the, uh, the, not the falsetto, not the Barry Gibb falsetto. <laughs> right. <laughs> he was not a dude who was out in the clubs after he got off of work. I'll tell you that. Anyhow, uh, so you know they're listening, and and, and here's something I, I've got just a little bit. I'll give you some quotes here, right here. One of the, the underboss, Carl uh, DeLuna, who's also known as Tuffy, so I like to refer to him as Tuffy, talking to Carl Savella, who was called Cork. So Tuffy and Cork are talking at this little table in the back. I think it was at a banquet with uh, some chairs there. And, and and he says, I told you, Carl, you're you're saying the public announcement that I told you that Genius was there when Joe went and cashed the check and Jay Brown was there. Cork says, yeah, at the Stardust. Well, see, right there, you're told they're talking about Las Vegas. So then they got to call out and find out Jay Brown's a lawyer out there that's kind of involved with uh, uh, the Stardust Casino. And, and then they figure out who owns it and... Uh, so there's some kind of a public announcement. And then he says, Genius was all for this deal. He wants to make a public announcement. Just like I told him, just do what you got to do. Make a public announcement and get out. Pick out whatever effing reason you want. Just make a public announcement and get out. I put that in his head. So that's kind of like interesting. But, you know, you sit there and you go, what the hell is he talking about? But then it really gets interesting. He says, uh, well, it can't be $2 million a year, $2 million a month. 25 million a year, they can't make that. Well, it's something like 2 million a month. Where the F is his, his debt service? I'm talking about Genius's debt service. Can't be nowhere near that. What's his net, mo- net going to be monthly? Are we going to get a piece of that? Are we in on that? Because if you got to pay 2 million a month of rent, well, we're only in with the operators, right? Remember the deal in Chicago? 
So, I mean, that'll, that'll get your attention. Yeah, four and a half million a year. Yeah, right, a year, right? They quickly became aware of the context. When they hear the word right, stardust, they, when they hear, right. uh, you know, mention other crime families, when they're talking about how much is the take on a monthly or a weekly, uh, right. they, they know that they're stumbling upon something pretty big, right? You got something going, and they check, and, and the owner of the Stardust, or the Argent Casino, or Argent Corporation, which owns the Stardust, the Hacienda, the Marina, and the uh, Fremont, had publicly announced that he was selling out his interest in the casino business. It's like, oh, oh wow. And, and here the underboss of Kansas City says, I put that in his head. So, uh, you know, one of the, the – and that thing, you know, they're, they're talking in innuendo and half sentences, and that's a hard thing about wiretaps. Yeah, it's tough to interpret those, but they do say something at the end, and they say, "Well, I got to get to a phone," and there's a phone right there, payphone even right there. But they don't. He said, "I got to get to the phone." So that's when that's kind of when they brought us in. We were we probably I can't remember. I don't think I was there that night when they installed that bug. We always help them install the bugs by suiting up in police uniforms and getting a marked car and just driving around and make sure nobody comes in accidentally or if they do we just grab them up and say you know uh do what you know a uniformed policeman grabs you up then you're just going to do what he says to do to do for a while and, and without any argument so uh, that was always our part in that thing but uh uh you know we we locked down on a surveillance on Tuffy because they had to find that phone and well once we found that phone that uh that was at a hotel on the east side uh, over by some truck docks actually and an out-of-the-way hotel, and there was a bank of four phones that they were using, and and he had his mole guy named Joe Augusto out in uh, Las Vegas, and they just opened up on that phone. They felt totally safe from one pay phone to the other, and they opened up on that. So, so that's kind of what led into you know solving the scam. That that was it right there. When they were saying the genius on that tap, they were referring to Alan Glick. Right, right, right. You kind of put that together that uh, Alan Glick had made a public announcement he was going to sell the Stardust, and they talked about Genius was going to make a public announcement yeah. and, and to sell something. So I think they put it together pretty quick. So, Jimmy, let's just uh, digress for about maybe two minutes and let everyone know kind of a little background on Alan Glick. Uh, he was played by Kevin Pollack in the movie Casino. The character's name was Philip Green, but it was based on Alan Glick. And uh, just like we've said, he was the front man. Uh, he was a straw man, which is why the the the, the title of the or, uh, of the operation and the trial was called the straw man case. And then it became a straw man two case. Uh, and Alan Glick was the straw man. Uh, he had gone to college with the son of the Milwaukee Don, Frank Balistrieri. And from Balistrieri's son, he was introduced to uh, the mob hierarchies in uh, Kansas City and Milwaukee, and then they kind of puppeted him. Scott, he had made another contact in that. He had... Uh, he knew that the Teamsters were the only people that would loan money for casinos because banks couldn't do it at the time. He had contacted a Teamster pension fund asset manager who also directed him to Ballesteri. So we had kind of a double entree into Ballesteri, but his main contact was Ballesteri to get started on this deal, to get the Teamster money. And I think there's one more thing I want to let the audience know and and want you to comment on and get Jimmy's take on it too. So, you know, Hollywood always takes their, you know, kind of creative liberties – and, uh, and I think there was some half-truths here, but I want to, like, flesh out the whole truth. So the Kevin Pollack character um, in, the, in the film Casino, which was based on the character Philip Green was based on Glick, was very meek and kind of wimpy. And I'm not saying Alan Glick was a tough guy. He wasn't. But Alan Glick was like a decorated war hero um, and had worked in military intelligence um, and served, I think, two tours in Vietnam and came home with, uh, uh, you know, commendations. 
And in the film, he the implication is that he's in the dark about everything. Yeah. How true is how true is that? Yeah, I, I don't. He was not in the dark. He, he's <laughs> okay. the one who put his name on the line for the sixty-two million dollars. He had been in the real estate business. He had he had actually borrowed some teachers' money before and developed a office development down in I believe Austin, Texas, which was going to rent space. Had some guaranteed uh, leases with the IRS and some other governmental agencies. So. He, he was familiar enough with real estate and borrowing money to know that what he was, he was getting and that, you know, he just wasn't, you know, uh, he, and he actually, he tried to, to push them off. See, I, my theory, if you want to know my theory is he thought he was smarter than they were. He thought he could slide in here and get this Teamsters loan and then brush them off. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't really realize. <laughs> you don't brush these guys off. Not smart. They brush no, you off. You don't brush these guys off. Yeah. And wasn't there a uh, famous meeting that was testified to at trial of when, and I, and I think we referenced the sale of Glick shares and how Tuffy DeLuna kind of bragged on the bug that, he had forced this forced the sale of the shares, but wasn't uh, there yeah. a uh, uh, a meeting between Deluna and Glick where Deluna started listing off the uh, addresses and names and and all this information about his family and how how easy they could be gotten to and basically threatened his life and his family's lives if if he didn't sell. Yeah, and that, that was verified not only by Alan Glick's statement, but it also was corroborated by notes that was found or found in Tucker DeLuna's office when we served the search warrant on it. He, he had documented his expenses out, his parking expenses, his expenses back on that date. And, and I believe there was some other mention about going out and talking to the genius and, and about this that he had written down himself. But yeah, he and everything else just just fell together and fit. That was that wasn't something Glick made up. Let's use the the anecdote you just gave us to uh, jump back into the movie Casino. Uh, and I referenced that there will be two scenes, but now I'm thinking there are going to be three scenes we talked about. We just talked about the Villa Capri bug, but there are two more scenes I want to talk about because uh, Gary was kind of involved in in the real life scenarios that those scenes were were based on. One of them he he just referenced again. Um, Tuffy DeLuna, the underboss of Kansas City, who in the movie is, uh, uh, I don't know the actor that plays him in the movie, but he's called Artie Piscano. Uh, There's some kind of funny back and forth dialogue about uh, Artie being like, you know, I'm spending all this money and nobody's reimbursing me. I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be making notes of it and keeping records. They trust that scumbag. I don't. And 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 the and the uh, other mob dong is like, Artie, no, I think it was supposed to be Nick Sevilla. Uh, he says, Artie, no records. No, don't write anything down. And then, <laughs> yeah, as, what are you gonna do? File taxes? Right, right, right. What do you? Who, yeah, who are you gonna? Who are you gonna send those records to? Um, and Deluna was kind of meticulous in in keeping, uh, you know, a, a a a catalog of expenses and what he was doing and where he was doing and had to keep a lot of kind of things in his head and wanted them all written down. Um, so in the movie. Uh, in one of the final scenes, as you know, as the the bust is happening and everyone's going down, they raid Artie Piscano's house and they find all these records. Artie Piscano then goes to, goes on to have a heart attack. Now that part's not true, but you were uh, part of the raid on Tuffy DeLuna's house where you found these records, which was like I'm sure just you know it's like hitting the holy grail in terms of uh, of building a case. <laughs> Yeah, it was. You know what's funny about doing things like that? They they don't they they seem a lot more dramatic in hindsight because you you've been there. That we found those records. I say we uh, uh, we had been there all night long. We started about eight o'clock at night, and this was about three o'clock in the morning. And I'll never forget. Tuffy tells the agent in charge of that. His name was Shay Airy. He was old time agent. Been working organized crime for. 25 years, as long as Owsley. And he says, Shay said, you might as well go down to the basement. That's where the good stuff is. And he had the office down there. So I went down there and they found the, you know, they go through the notes, but you know, you look at those notes and 
and there's no time to sit and study them or even read them very close. You say, oh, that's interesting. He wrote down this date. He wrote down 22 and, you know, 25 and and uh, went to here and, you know, it's all code. Well, you know, by the end of it, they broke all the codes that they used basically and the code names and, and figured out that, you know, like the number 22 was IUPA in Chicago. But if they wrote down 25 to 22, that mean they meant they sent $25,000 to, to IUPA in Chicago. So, uh, uh, so nobody really knew what they had in their hot little hands. Although it's kind of an interesting little another story that's not really known is a few days later, there's another microphone at a table in a restaurant and Tuffy is sitting there with a couple of the underlings, a guy named Joe Ragusa and Vince Abbott, and I think Charlie Mortina. And and they're talking about, and they had served search warrants on Mortina's house. I, I believe they might have searched, served him on, they did serve him on Abbott's house too. Mortina was convicted, was charged and convicted. Abbott wasn't, but they'd served these search warrants on all these guys' houses, and they were talking about, you know, what was going to happen. And Tuffy says, well, he said, we probably have to have to do two or three years. Better get your old ladies ready. Better I start brainwashing mine now. And then, he, and then he tries to tell me, you know, he said, they caught me with a bunch of shit. He said, I was going to get rid of it, but, you know, I had it all in a paper bag to go get those, throw it away. And I just hadn't really gotten down to it. I, they, they caught me with a bunch of shit. And, and the other guys are like giving him an out. They say, oh, you know, don't worry about it. You know, we're worth billions of dollars. You know, they can't do anything to us. And <laughs> so, so Tuffy knew what we had. And, and pretty soon uh, the law enforcement knew what we had. And you re- you referenced Joey Ayupa, um, And let's tie it back into the film. So in the movie, the kind of the – the shock collar amongst all of the Dons that you, you kind of get introduced to when they're meeting in this back room in Kansas City. Um, and they tell you they're from different crime families and they reference, you know, Detroit, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Cleveland, um, Chicago. Well, actually, they actually never say Chicago, which is interesting. They always say back home. Um, but it, so the main, uh, I guess, the Don of Dons is this Remo Gaji who's a fictional character. Right. Um, I've always believed that, that it's supposed to be Joey Ayupa, who was the boss of Chicago. Did, did you su- subscribe to that notion? Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think that kind of came from, you see, Nicholas Pelleggi, he came to Kansas City, spent several days with Owsley and, and went through files. And, and he, he, I tell you, that guy really does his research. He really does the background research. And, and so... There was also a meeting where Tuffy, Tuffy, I mean, uh, Nick Savella and Cork Savella went to Chicago, and this was set up while we had wires up on them. This was set up for them to go to Chicago and meet with Ayupa and Jackie Sroni at uh, Nick Savella's nephew's house, who lived, a guy named Anthony Shibola, who lives in Chicago. They were going to meet, and and they were going to discuss all this casino business. So I think now, they didn't have Milwaukee and didn't have anybody from Cleveland there. It was just those two because they were the main movers and shakers in this thing. Uh, they had already, Savella had already kind of shoved Ballesteria aside. He was still getting his money, but but he he was dominant over Ballesteria. And Cleveland seemed to be just a, a like kind of a periphery player. They were getting a stream of the skim because they helped get the pension fund loan approved, but they didn't really have much they they would not have been in any meetings to have any say so uh, during this time and and so I think it was from that meeting in Chicago which bureau almost had a bug in but they they thought they were going to meet on the second floor of this brownstone in Chicago it's a three story brownstone and Iupa because of his heart problems said oh I can't walk up there and they stayed downstairs and so they had this bug running upstairs and and to nothing while they were meeting and having this big long meeting. Uh, between the head of Kansas City mob and the head of Chicago outfit uh, for several hours. Now, Bill Owsley would say, I sure would like to listen in on that one. Uh, Gary, let me ask you a a macro question here because I think about my students. I teach a course on gangs and organized crime, and quite often they, they ask me questions about the actual scams and crimes themselves. So if we think of the two pillars of what the mob is doing in Vegas. It, one is trying to secure loans from the Teamsters 
which you're which you've already mentioned, but we've talked about the skim several times. Can you break down what we mean by the skim? Why is that illegal? Why is that important to gangsters? Why are police trying to stop that? That's a great point, Jimmy. That's uh, um, what it does, of course, for the mobsters. I guess I should tell you how it works. Tell your listeners how it works is they these four mob families influenced the Central States Teamsters Pension Fund, which is a billion-dollar pension fund, to loan $62 million to Alan Glick to buy these four casinos for the form this corporation and, and bring in these four casinos and develop them and, and keep them going. And, and in return for their influence for him to get that loan, because, see, he was an unproven 32-year-old guy at the time. He couldn't have bought $32 million just on basically on his name, a signature loan on the name of Alan Glick. He didn't have any collateral. He didn't have anything. He didn't have much of a track record even. Uh, But they did it anyhow. And, uh, you know, in order for him to secure that loan, then he's got to agree. What he agreed to, it appears to me, is that they he would hire certain people that they tell him to hire. Now, he would claim that I didn't know they were going to do what they did. But those people like Lefty Rosenthal, who then brought in some other people, and they get in the count room or they, they rig the scales so the, uh, the coins are misweighed so they can generate extra money that's not counted. They want to and get in the count room where the case comes in because they want to they have to control the count room, too. They can't have any informants or any uh, loose lips in that count room. And they take that money out before it's ever counted. And that way, the, the state of Nevada is cheated on their taxes. Uh, there, there's no really shareholders in this. There might be some other minority partners with Glick. I can't remember. Glick would be cheated because of this. And, but the mob would be getting the kickback for their influence over making the loan. And, and for mobs, once they get that, they say, Alan Glick, he says, okay, that's fine. You know, that's my money. It's my corporation, privately held corporation. That's fine. But, uh, you know, the bigger picture is, and they use the RICO statute, a racketeer-influenced and corrupt organization. That was, you know, that was the very model of a racketeer-influenced and corrupt organization when they allow uh, employees to take money before the taxes are going to be paid on it and then send it back out in cash money to these mob families. And mob families get this steady stream of cash money. And with cash money, then you can buy political influence. If you're going to buy a, you're going to fund a politician, uh, you're not going to write him a check. You're not going to Venmo him money or PayPal him money. You're going to give him cash. You've got to have cash for all those kinds of deals. So they had all this, you know, we had 40 grand a month just coming from the trop. That's a whole different stream of skim. We won't even go into the Tropicana skim. We had 40 grand a month coming from that because uh, we caught a guy with 80 grand. It was two months take. So uh, they had, you know, I don't know, 100 and 150 grand coming in every month to Chicago that then was, you know, piecing it out to Milwaukee, Kansas City, and Cleveland for their part of it. And, and they were, and Chicago was keeping their part of it. So that's, uh, uh, you know, that's how it works. And, and that's why it's illegal is, uh, because it's part of this racketeer influence and corrupt organization. Uh, so I, I don't know if people understand it or not. I hope they do. No, that's, that's great. I appreciate that. And, and I don't want to bore people too much with the accounting here, but I'm just curious, like how, what did, how did they decide how much to skim? Was it like, well, we, we can only, like, if we skim too much, then then maybe Uncle Sam's going to notice because the, something doesn't seem right here. I mean, how, who who decides? Is that IUPA? I mean, who's going to make the call about this is the percentage we can skim and and probably no one's going to notice? I mean, do we do we even know, like, the who's the mastermind of this? I think probably out of the stardust, you know, if you ask me, it was Lefty Rosenthal. Oh, that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. Because he was, you know, he was a master at numbers. He right. was a guy that knew numbers. He, you know, some people just know numbers. He knew numbers. And and he could figure that out. Now, like at the Tropicana, they had a guy named Carl Thomas that was a, an experienced casino executive, been around casinos a long time. 
and and he knew, you know, you've been in that business for a long time, uh, then you kind of know what you can take out without causing uh, too many bells to start going off. Right. So do you think, I mean, until you guys stumbled across this on the, the wiretap and, and you're looking into other cases and you stumble across this, did you have any sense of the scale of, of what was going on in Vegas or did this totally take you guys by surprise as investigators? Oh, I, you know, at, at my level, because at the bottom of the food chain, I, I was I was kind of shocked how much money it was. Right. I think maybe at the upper levels, people had really studied this and, and knew all what all was at stake. I don't think they were too surprised. They were just, you know, it just been so hard to, to get to the bottom of it because nobody was talking. And even if they did, I mean, people, I think... I think informants said, you know, they're getting money coming out of Las Vegas. They own, you know, they got, they got points in the Stardust apparently because they get a lot of money out of that. But, you know, on paper, there's no points in, in the Stardust. Uh, nobody has any in, uh, paper interest in that. So they knew they were getting money out of it for a long time. You just, it's just so hard to, to get to that when nobody's talking. And even if somebody talks, then what do you do? You know that, but then what do you do? You gotta you gotta go up on a whole bunch of wiretaps. You gotta figure out, try to get somebody that you can put a case on and turn to tell you how it works. Uh, in our case, we were lucky enough to uh, get a microphone in a house here in Kansas City, and uh, Joe Augusto and this Carl Thomas from the truck came back and they laid it out exactly how it worked. And then they turned around. Carl Thomas had worked at the Stardust during the time when Lefty was there, and then Lefty was out, and then he came back, and then Lefty was jealous of him and, and got him booted out, and they hired him in over at the Tropicana so he could testify as to how exactly how the scam to work. But it's, uh, you know, for an outsider, it's, it's tough to figure out. And, and then to make a case on it's even harder. And when you just uh, reference Lefty, you're talking about uh, Frank Lefty Rosenthal, who in the movie Casino was known as Ace Rothstein. In real life, he was Lefty, not Ace. And uh, Lefty was the, you know, kind of boots on the ground for the mob in the casino, uh, running things day to day, uh, even though he wasn't uh, licensed. And... uh, as you know, I'm sure the movie Casino. Happy birthday, Bobby D. Yeah, Bobby D turned way. 78. <laughs> yeah. 78. So. Uh, today, when we're recording this. Uh, so I'm sure people know, but if they don't, I'll give you uh, a. <laughs> actually, I'm, people know the movie Casino. Uh, it makes it, me want to watch it. To yeah, end this it, conversation it's, with uh, Gary. You know, about uh, the real life relationship between Tony Spilatro and, and Lefty Rosenthal. Uh, in the movie, they change the names, and it's Nikki Santoro and uh, Ace Rothstein. Um, but uh, pretty much everything you see in that movie is exactly what happened. Oh, was that because Spilatro's son w- was uh, I don't going know. to sue? Because no, Spilatro was dead. To, there's nothing by... to sue. I don't know why he decided to change the names. Because Lefty was still alive at yeah. that point. So. Um, but they changed a lot of the names. And like and like we said before, they didn't even say the word Chicago. Yeah. They just said back home. Right. Um, but they did say Kansas City, Milwaukee, Detroit, right. and Cleveland. Right. Um. I know that uh, Tony's really uh, the uh, deceased Detroit mob underboss um, believed, and I, I kind of agreed with him that uh, one of those characters that plays one of the mob bosses in the back room, who's kind of an oh, heavy set bald guy, who the Nikki Santoro character says something about like, yeah, like this uh, relic from Detroit. Uh, Tony Z <laughs> thought that that was him. And I think he's right. That that, that was him. Uh, and he's one of the guys that says, uh, what do you think, Remo? <laughs> At the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, but I want to, um, just one more scene uh, and dissect it. And, and again, we just kind of talked a little bit about the, the real life situation, but there are one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And Gary and I have talked about this uh, off, uh, off air was uh, the scene where the, the skimmers um, are, are coming to the mob and explaining to them that the skim is being skimmed. <laughs> yeah, that's the best. And that uh, the people that they have hiring or the people that they're hiring in the, in the count rooms um, are, are taking some for themselves. And the reaction from 
the wise guys is just hilarious. And I can just remember the the uh, conversation going, uh, yeah, you know, you, you can't expect guys that you're paying to steal not to steal from you. Uh, it's called leakage. And the guy says, leakage my balls. I want my money. <laughs> you mean the money we're stealing, they're stealing from us? They're stealing from us? So uh, you were kind of privy to that the real conversation that took place on a wire that they uh, took and kind of that inspired some, uh, some of that dialogue. Um, who, so was it, was it a, was it Augusto and Thomas having that talk? Were they talking with one of the Sevillas? It was Nick was worried that some of these guys in the count room were stealing money. And, and he actually, he called a moratorium on the skimming for a while and uh, said, you know, don't skim. I, let's watch the numbers. I'm not sure exactly. I'm not an accountant. I don't know how that would work. But he called a moratorium on the skimming for a couple of months. This is Nick. This is Nick. This is Nick Sevilla, the Nick, Godfather Nick of Kansas Savella, City. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. And 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 uh, and then he, you know, they opened it back up. But they brought Joe Gosto and Carl Thomas here to Kansas City and 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 talked about this. And uh, Carl Thomas is. Swearing, he said, "You know, my guys, they I trust them a ten thousand percent. They've been with me for twenty years. I got this crew that you know we own that count room. You know, it's not very big. Nobody else is in there." Nick says, "Well, you know, what if somebody just like opens their door and sticks his head in?" He said, "No, we got a guard out on the door." He said, "Well, he said, do you do you, do you tip that guard or you give me give him something?" And and you know, he's like, just keeps questioning about how he secures this money. And then he wants to know, he said, well, now this money, uh, is it just laying out there loose or is it already bundled up in packets of say $50,000 or, you know, what's it like? He said, well, it's just laying loose. You know, we got to ton it, bundle it up. He said, so you can tell he really gets suspicious then that it's just laying loose because he can see people just grabbing money up and, and, and stick it in their pocket. <laughs> I mean, he just, just, these were pretty candid conversations. I mean, they, they weren't talking oh in, my God. in code like they were uh, no. in some of those other books. There was no code. He took yeah. extra precautions. What, what he didn't know, see, he made arrangements when they were, they were in the lawyer's office, but we had a bug in the lawyer's office and on the lawyer's phone. And he made all these arrangements with a, and it was going to be in a relative of, his wife's house, which wasn't too far from his house. And you could go into one house and go out. And what he did, he had them, when they came to town, he gave me elaborate instructions. Do not fly together. Do not use credit cards. And, and then they screwed up and they ended up getting on the same flight from Phoenix. They went to Las Vegas to Phoenix, Phoenix, Kansas City. And they both ended up on the same flight to Kansas City. Was there are probably boy. only so many flights going from Phoenix to Kansas City, especially back then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. But, and then they'd go in Tony Wright's house, but then go right out the back door and walk across the backyards and, and get into this Josie's house uh, God, all of a sudden I've lost her last name. Anyhow, it was a relative of his wife's house. She, you know, she had left out of the house for the day, but the, the bureau had figured out where it was going to be and about when it was going to be and got those uh, bugs in there. And, and uh, so, you know, it was just, he was just hammering on how they, how could they skim if they were. And, and he talked about, he talked about, uh, Carl Thomas told a story about, putting money in his own pockets when a uh, real well-known gaming control investigator named Shannon Bybee was standing right there. And <laughs> Nick made a statement. He said, yeah, I said, sometimes just do something right in front of somebody is the best way. <laughs> I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, just uh, the, the, the criminal behavior uh, came out. So let's finish, uh, finish up here with uh, first uh, the straw man cases hit, I believe, in '82 and '84. There were two separate. Believe, yes, you're right. Two separate there cases. Two separate yeah, and they brought down the bosses of Chicago: uh, Joey Ayupa, uh, Jackie the Lackey Cerrone, who you referenced, who was Ayupa's underboss. Brought down Frank Balistrieri, the Mad Bomber, uh, boss of Milwaukee. Brought down the Sevilla brothers, Nick and Carl Sevilla, as well as their 
uh, underboss Tuffy DeLuna, brought down uh, Angie Leonardo and, and James Licavoli, uh, Macy Rockman from Cleveland. Uh, the Detroit guys had gotten uh, caught with their hands in the cookie jar. Uh, they were the first family to get caught skimming the uh, casinos back in the 60s. Um, but I think they were still taking a piece of um, of some of that skim, even though they weren't included in the straw man case because they had set up the Teamsters uh, pension fund loans for all those casinos uh, through Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, I believe they were taking, still taking a piece of it. Um, and were you present at any of those trials? No, I wasn't. I had, uh, see, I was, um, I got promoted to sergeant. I was back out uh, in patrol at the time or tack unit or someplace narcotics. I can't remember, but no, I was working somewhere else by the time those went down, I didn't make them. And what, kind of, what you know, a little interesting side story is Bill Owsley had retired at that time, the FBI agent was a case agent, and he was hired by Alan Glick. The U.S. attorney, you know, they wanted to provide him with official security, and Alan Glick, he did not want to appear he was on anybody's side. He wanted to be a neutral who was just coming in, answering the questions. So he agreed to let Bill Owsley go pick him up, out of his hotel and drive him in and just kind of look around because Bill knew local people and everything. And, and so uh, Bill said, you know, he said he was just real quiet and taciturn. He said he just, he was a kind of a guy that just kept everything to himself. He was pleasant. He was polite, but he was everything he said, you could tell he, he ran that through his filter before he spoke on anything. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting little insight into Alan Glick. Gary, I'm going to pose this to you and to Jimmy. You know, sitting here now, uh, Alan Glick died a couple weeks ago, summer of uh, 2021. We're talking about stuff that was happening in, in the late 70s, early 80s. Those trials all came to, you know, the, I think the last uh, group of Dons to go on trial was uh, end of 85. The verdicts came down in um early 86. So you're talking about 40 years ago. Um, how, how did Alan Glick survive? Like how did he <laughs> avoid being great murdered question. when there were so many other people that were involved in that skimming conspiracy in one way or the other that were killed? Alan Dorfman comes to mind, uh, who was the, the head of the pension fund, name, had yeah. ties to both the Detroit and Chicago uh, mobs. You had uh, Jay, Jay Vandermark, um, who was the, the guy that was in head, uh, head of the skim uh, at a more um, on the ground level, ended up dead. They depicted that uh, hit in, in the movie Casino. You had Tony Spilatro, who uh, him and his brother are, are beaten to death uh, for all the craziness that uh, ensued in their reign. Uh, but Alan Glick, although he's he's the star witness at this trial, they tried to kill Lefty too, right? They tried, yeah, they they, uh, uh, they bombed Lefty's right. car, right? But nobody tried to hurt Alan Glick. Why do you think that Good was? Good question. Uh, you know, in my opinion, he was he was careful. He was, uh, I think, just before the trial, they were a little bit afraid to kill him that because there was maybe enough other evidence. He wasn't like the only piece of evidence that was going to hurt him, and so that then. Uh, implicates that there's a murder implicated in their trial and, and but there was no murders uh, connected to their trial. It was all white collar crime, basically. So I, I think they made a calculated response to not create any more stuff, uh, especially a murder of a key witness. And see, Lefty Rosenthal was not a witness. He was not even called to the grand jury. So, uh, you know, that uh, that's a little different ball game there but to kill a federal witness is a is kind of important and then he was careful he he lived in a gated community is my understanding he hired a lot of different off-duty san diego policemen out there uh, periodically and just laid low until everybody's gone and just like frank culotta next thing you know frank culotta's out there running doing his uh, mob tour vegas yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, ain't meeting anybody that shows up um so when you when you talk about not well, he, not, he wasn't just so people know he wasn't living in witness protection. Right. He was living as Alan Glick in right. San Diego, California. Right. He never went to witness protection. There, he never, never took that. Is this the scene? I'm I'm looking at a story right now yeah, in so, San Diego about Tamara Rand. Okay, so this is, that is the a scene in this the movie? was a murder, but this is before the yes. Bust this is in '75. Okay, the, there was a murder that was tied to the skimming conspiracy tangentially, right? Uh, but people feared 
if the the situation continued on this this uh, business beef between Alan Glick and a uh, investor with him named Tamara Rand, um, and Tamara Rand was challenging uh, some of the papers, the ownership papers, investment papers in court, and was pressing Alan to open up his books which would then have shown the uh, the government uh, who was behind Allen. And uh, Tamara Rand ended up dead, uh, shot to death in her, she was a female, uh, shot to death uh, in her uh, San Diego home, in her kitchen. In the movie, they show uh, Joe Pesci yeah, Tony, doing it. Uh, uh, yeah, so Nikki. Tony Spilatro, they believe, at least at the very least, I believe Tony Spilatro was put in charge of getting it carried out, but, whether he actually carried it out. But that wasn't part of the later indictment no, that's that was just the ra- racketeering skim. No, this was before any of that. This was yeah, in '75. Okay, okay. This okay. was right when the the relationship between Glick and the mafia was just taking off. Right. It was, like a, year, it was like a year or two into the to the Argent, the ownership of all those casinos. What, I'm surprised they didn't try to tie that in because with murder charges, you can get. You know, they, life, had no, they had no proof. They had no no they one had was no talking. I, I got yeah. you. I got you. Uh, it's still considered unsolved, technically, yeah. that, that murder. So last thing I want to uh, touch on, and then I want to give you a chance to pub everything uh, that you got going on and let people know where they can find you. <laughs> and this is a slight digression, but I think it's noteworthy. Uh, so we were talking at the beginning of this podcast about the River Key Wars and a organized crime figure in Kansas City by the name of Willie the Rat Camisano. Um, who was like the Sevilla's street boss, their, you know, their junkyard dog that uh, carried out uh, all of their um, enforcement orders and was a guy that was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Gary, probably uh, a suspect in, you know, more than uh, two dozen uh, gangland homicides. And he he became the boss uh, of the family after the Sevilla's died. And then he died. Um, but his son, little Willie Camisano, uh, is considered a made guy today in the Kansas City crime families, considered if they have couple regimes, he would be a couple regime. Uh, and back during the River Key Wars of the 70s, little Willie, uh, was making his bones, uh, if you believe uh, the FBI and and what the Kansas City, Kansas City PD um, uh, investigated, so Little Willie, while he's never been convicted of any acts of violence, Little Willie himself is uh, a suspect in multiple uh, gangland murders. He's seventy three right now, and the reason I'm talking about him is because he had a bout with COVID that put him in, gave him a stroke. And put him in a coma. Um, he's now out of it and rehabbing. And his family has set up a GoFundMe um, looking to raise money for him. I've written about it, so it's not a secret. Um, do you have any comment on that, Gary? Interest Is that kind of like uh, it, it kind of grabs your you attention know, that, that a, a mobster would be go, going to the public to fund his uh, health care? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know – I think it just shows you that why I'm so interested in organized crime is, is they're like, there's the, they're just multidimensional people that uh, they're just like me and you, except they have this little twist and they were born into this kind of system or, or this influence that, you know, certain rules are not meant for them, but otherwise they have families, they have wives, they have kids, they go, they're, you know, the kids are on little league teams and have other friends or kids and our other kids are their friends and people know them. And, and some of them even go to church once in a while. So it just goes to show you that they're just like me and you, but they just have this subtle little twist that, that enables them to, to push over that line that most of it won't, won't ever push over. And, and they're born into a system, which is, set up for that that's that's one reason i find it so interesting they're just not the booger eating moron that goes out ah. here and, and steals something yeah. because he's an addict he, he he goes steal something to feed his addiction that it's more like a business and they do it in a smart way i always appreciated somebody does something in a smart way and let's let's uh be clear i don't necessarily think it's little willie camisano that's 
asking for this help. I, I think it's coming from, or I should I say, I, I know it's coming from his daughters and his right. wife. Um, so it's not, you know, it, it's not little Willie putting the request up on <laughs> GoFundMe or Kickstarter. Uh, and it's coming from little Willie. It's actually coming from his daughters. Well, let me ask um, you two guys. The, the, I don't think it's a scam. I had a, a pretty good source report to me that he had that long-term COVID and he had the stroke and, and that was all verified to, to me over the past several months by another guy who's, you know, is in the know on that. So let me ask you both. I'm, I don't know that much about the Kansas city organization. So I appreciate, you know, Gary and Scott sharing their, their insight and expertise here. I have to imagine that just from what I know about the Italian American mafia in general, that in many ways, this must have crippled the Kansas city organization. And it would it be fair to say that they never fully recovered from these, from this round of incarceration. I mean, um, you know, arrest and incarceration in, in the, in the eighties. I mean, you just mentioned there's still oh, a yeah. few guys around, but is it safe to say the organization never recovered? Right. And, and, you know, Jimmy, it, it's not only because they, they put all those people in jail. It's also because they lost the influence of the Teamsters Union. Oh, yeah. They lost the steady yeah. stream of cash money coming in every month. And they lost a lot of, of uh, power within the community that some people might have given them before because they showed that, you know, these guys, they could be brought down too. Uh, so that, you know, all that, the Teamsters, uh, like the Labor Department, U.S. Department of Labor, when this was all exposed, they end up putting a Teamsters unit under a trusteeship, kicked all the old uh, uh, Teamsters, the business agents and, and everybody that was elected. I think they kicked them all out or an awful lot of them out and made them have new elections and then appointed trustees to oversee all that for quite a while. They really, so they lost all that. Cause you know, if you own the Teamsters union, then you can make political contributions through your Teamsters pals and, and help get yourself, you know, get judges elected and, and city councilmen and people like that, that then you can talk to. That makes sense. Thank you. Well, this was great. Uh, Gary, um, you are uh, the expert's expert when it comes to this kind of stuff. Uh, anything related to Kansas City, the history of Kansas City, organized crime, uh, just crime in general in Kansas City. Gary is a go-to source. Uh, Gary, tell everyone, <laughs> and you've done some great documentaries. Uh, tell, tell everyone about where they can find your stuff and some of the stuff you've done over the last handful of years. Okay, primarily the one place would be my website is www.ganglandwire.com, and I have my podcast up. I put out a podcast every week. We, you know, we interview people. I tell stories sometimes and, and just research things, and those come out once a week on all the podcast app. I have the Kansas City Mob Tour app. You can download this app. I charge a little bit of money for it, or Apple does, and uh, you can take a mob tour of Kansas City, complete with maps and some pictures and some text to tell you what happened there. Uh, I wrote a, a book, uh, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos, and, and, and kind of tell this story in more detail, of course, but the important thing about this book, I thought was pretty slick, I made a Kindle version and I had copies of all the audio from the wiretap. So I ex made extensive use of the transcripts in the paper book. And then when you look in the Kindle version, you tap on a link where the transcripts are being used and you go to the actual audio and you can hear the actual words of what the guys were saying back then in the book. So I've done, uh, I did a documentary gangland wires. My first one, just about this whole thing in general that we just talked about. Uh, I did a second one called uh, brothers against brothers, the Savella Spiral war, which then goes into, takes a deep dive on this mob war we had in Kansas city. And I've got my uh, third one coming out this next fall. I'm about done with it now called, uh, boat fraud here again, the, uh, uh, mob and the machine, I believe, will be the tagline on it. It's about a 1946 uh, primary election in Kansas City where the mob was caught uh, rigging the election and exactly how they did it because they had a lot of people testify as exactly how they did it. And they ended up putting uh, the feds in that putting one mob guy in jail for about two years for this uh, election fraud. Is that connected to Pendergast? 
at all? Yeah, well, kind of the, the nephew of Tom Pendergast was Jim Pendergast in 1946 when this happened, he still had some influence, but the mob guy named Charlie Benaggio probably was eclipsing the Pendergast organization with his own political organization at the time and kind of taking it over and merging it with the, uh, what we call the first ward of the North end political organization, which was out of little Italy and, and that original uh, ward over there where all the Italians lived and that political organization. So yeah, that's uh, I, I, I love that yeah. era. I, I think that's fascinating. And, and you know, my understanding you'd you'd know better than me, I think, Gary. But my understanding is that Harry Truman, former President Harry Truman, was never apologetic about his sort of shady ties to the, to the Pendergast machine. machine. <laughs> like he never, you know, a lot of guys, politicians are sort of slippery about that, but he was pretty much, no, like, yeah, he was a friend of mine and we did, you know, we're associated and, you know, too, tough shit if you don't like it. Is that, was that your sense, Gary, that that was his attitude? If I could add something to that, and you're, you're correct on that, in, in this movie, I have a letter that he wrote to Jim Pendergast asking that this particular man not be reelected because he was causing President Truman some trouble. Oh, and yeah. uh, Pender Pendergast then went to Charlie Benaggio and said, we got to keep this guy from being elected. And that's the election fraud. That was a direct result of the Pendergast mob uh, political cartel, shall we call it, uh, acting for President Harry Truman, and he never ever mentioned that one either. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great stuff. Well, I hope I hope our, our listeners, you know, you know, look up your work and check out Gangland Wire. And uh, we we really appreciate you coming on. I I could talk to you all day. And this I love I love talking about that era. I love talking about the casino stuff. So we really appreciate you coming on, Gary. You've done it all. You've said it all. <laughs> and we're just happy you've came here to share it all with us. Gary, you're uh, you're you're always welcomed on the OG podcast. You're a friend of the show. You're a, a true uh, American hero in my book, and uh, you're, you're you, you you provide great content. Um, so check check out Gary. Uh, do a rewatch of the movie Casino. Jimmy and I are going to do one very yeah, soon. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, and uh, go read Family Affair, which is my book about the movie Casino. Another great uh, book. Telling you the, the true story behind uh, a lot of the stuff that happened, just like we did today. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of the Original Gangsters Podcast for Jimmy Bucciolato. This is Scott Bernstein, out. <laughs> <laughs>